Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. In 1987, I was out of college, but one of my favorite bands of all time, and Danny, this will resonate with you, would be a band that came out of the great state of Georgia, Athens, Georgia, by the way. That would, of course, be R.E.M. And in 1987, Danny, they released Document. And on that album were a number of different songs. The one I love, beautiful song, by the way, but one of the songs was It's the End of the World as We Know It and I Feel Fine. And I got to tell you, folks, we'll put this up on the Risk Reversal website. You look at the lyrics of that song and it's almost like those MFers had crystal balls or something because everything in that song is lining up with what's going on right now. The world is screwed without question. But in terms of the market, Danny Moses, everything's beautiful. I feel fine. What could possibly go wrong here? Yeah, nice bounce off the lows. S&P up 8% off the lows. NASDAQ, I think, as we speak right now, up 12% off the lows. Just a deep breath. Certainly, it's rallied more than I would have thought for sure. Like we talked about before, it's not keeping up with inflation, the markets. Maybe it's starting to catch up to inflation. This is why we keep saying cash is not a great place to be. But little shocked at where this thing has gone. Maybe people were caught a little bit off sides. I do think there's some other stuff going on here with quarter-end books. I think there's a lot of redemptions happening in hedge funds that they have to raise cash. I think that sometimes can mean short covering as much as it does long selling from time to time. So I think as books come down, we're seeing a little bit. We're going to talk about some of this meme stock revenge that we're seeing that may look like that. But things aren't getting better, in my opinion. And so again, I fade these type rallies here. Before you get in, I want to welcome back Dan Nathan, was on a bit of a hiatus last week. Happy anniversary, by the way, Dan. How are you? Welcome back. 22 magical years, Guy Dami. I will tell you this. It was kind of interesting for me. I play the heel on CBC's Fast Money a little bit, Guy. I started doing Fast Money at no shit, April 2009. And I think I've been labeled bear since then. So I literally nailed the bottom of the S&P. I think I started, was trading at 666 that day. But I will take you back to March of 2000. I got married on March 18th, 2000. I took down my trading book. My firm was very short. We were very bearish, to be very honest with you. I took my book down. I went away for two weeks after my wedding. I got back, I think, on April 1st. The market had topped out. All my buddies made a lot of money, and I got married. So I go away a week ago, and I don't really press shorts. I don't press markets where the sentiment is really bad, and we're down a lot, and everyone's convinced we're going lower. It's the end of the world. And again, because I was going away for a week, I cleared out of some stuff and it helped me in that instance because we've had this sort of massive rally. But I'm kind of in Danny's camp here. It feels a little technical. It feels like the sentiment was just really, really bad. The uncertainty level about the geopolitical environment was really at its height at that point. And so now here we are, what, 10 days later, the S&P is down 5% on the year. When you think about the level of uncertainty and what's going on here, the Fed rate hiking cycle, the potential for more geopolitical dust-ups, maybe in China with Taiwan or something like that. It just doesn't seem like the stock market is paying much attention to everything else that's going on here. In case you were wondering, by the way, you are in fact listening to the On The Tape podcast. Guy Adami here, joined as always by the sexy Danny Moses, the brilliant and equally sexy 
Dan Nathan, this week on On the Tape, Danny Moses is going to break down a few of these Sweet 16 games. I know you were waiting for that last week. We teased it. We're going to talk about the S&P. We're going to talk about some of these mortgage-backed securities. We're also going to talk about a yield curve that before your very eyes, folks, is inverting if you look at five-year versus 10-year. And later, we're going to go off the tape with legendary technology investor Gavin Baker of Atreides Management. Dan, welcome back again. Danny Moses, look, I'm as bearish as you. And then when you said you were scared, that scared the you-know-what out of me. Markets proceeded to have a pretty mind-numbing rally. We had a little bit of a sell-off earlier this week, but back on its horse. I'm really not sure what people are looking at. Maybe they think there's peace is going to be declared, Russia, Ukraine. Maybe they don't think there's going to be some dust-up between China and Taiwan. Maybe they somehow think the Federal Reserve is going to thread this needle. I don't think any of those things are going to happen. But right now, that's what the market's saying, Danny. The market has fully priced in the Fed going eight or nine times at this point. And for Powell to say like he did the other day in the interview that he gave that he may go 50, had an initial shock headline to the market, it absorbed it, and then it rallied. So I think the market's pricing in that eight, nine, 10. But what they're not pricing in is what that actually means, I think, in the long term to the value of equities, to the cost of debt, and a lot of other things. And we're going to talk about in a minute what's going on in the mortgage market, which is pretty profound. And so I believe this is just a relief rally, so to speak. And again, it's not about being bearish. And I just want to qualify that we've been constructive for the last five or six months. Try not to get too bearish. Try not to buy into the bullishness, but try to be objective. Wait, wait, wait. Who's this we? What do you got, a little mouse in your pocket? Who's been constructive? We try to be constructive here and there. I think part of the thesis, and we've been seeing this play out over the course of 2021. We've been pointing out the insanity, the stuff that actually hasn't rallied a whole heck of a lot that will not come back. Guy's been talking about the bubbling pressures in commodities. This is before the invasion of the Russians into Ukraine. So to me, I think we've been less than constructive. Guy, what you're saying that you were brought up in the camp that anything that can go wrong will go wrong. Our job is not to be the cheerleaders of the stock market. Turn on the tube, turn on most podcasts, listen to FinTwit. That's all there. I mean, our job is really focused on the things that people should be paying attention to. And I just take issue with the fact that we've tried to be constructive here and there. We know this, that there's fits and starts in markets. I'm staring at the chart of the S&P 500 here. On January 4th, when things sucked, when everyone knew that the Fed was going to start raising rates, the S&P 500 ticked above 4,800, a new all-time high. And by the end of the month, we were almost at 4,200 or something like that. So to me, we're not done yet. Just because the markets rally, turn off your Twitter machine. Stop listening to some of these a-holes. As far as I'm concerned, fine, we can be in a structurally bull market here. But there can be these mini bearish scenarios, and we've seen it in crypto, we've seen it in meme stocks, we've seen it in recent IPOs and high valuation tech. It's all been unwinding for the last year or so. So just because the S&P has rallied from 4,200 to where we are at 4,500 right now, it might go to 4,600 people. That was a double top that we saw two times in February. It almost got to 4,600, and that will be the max pain trade. I just don't see outside of some sort of massive resolution to the situation in Eastern Europe and a whole host of other things, the ability for the stock market to get back to the 4,800 level in the S&P 500 anytime soon. I think we have a different definition of constructive. I'm saying constructive in the sense of trying to help people guide when the market rallies like it does to sell some stuff that shouldn't be there. And the flip side of that, when the market gets pounded, 
there are value things that you can certainly buy. So I'm saying our narrative has been consistent. We've tried to guide people what to look for. They're going to do what they're going to do, and that's fine. So my definition of constructive was exactly what you just described. So I think we were talking about the exact same thing. Speaking of construction guy, not to jump ahead, steal your thunder, take a segue away from you, but the builders guy, construction, I think we should talk about. It is the only fundamental group. When I say that, it actually is trading like it should. It is rational. You can't meme stock a builder. You have to physically build something. It's not a virtual NFT, right? You can't just create it out of thin air. It actually takes people and labor and products. That's certainly a group that I've been looking at that's been in the news. It was portending both what rates and the cost of materials and so forth was going to happen. And it actually is the most efficient sector right now in the market. You mentioned builders. It's important. Now, KB Homes made, I think, an all-time high back in 2005. But in this recent move, if you look at it, KB Homes topped out, I want to say, north of $50. Basically, a year ago, it was May of last year. That stock has sold off significantly to the tune of probably 35% or so since then. So you're right. They're actually starting to trade the way they should trade. And if you think about some of the headwinds that they're facing and look at the quarter they reported this week, there are a lot of things that were tailwinds that are becoming significant headwinds. And I think to your point about the builders, they are telling a very significant story here. And then tangentially, if you look downstream, Home Depot hasn't traded all that well for the last couple of months either. That stock's off some 25% from its all-time high. So to Dan's point, and I think to your point as well, Danny, beneath the surface, there are things in sectors and stocks that are telling a story. The only thing that doesn't seem to be catching up or figuring it out is the broader markets in the form of obviously the S&P 500 to a lesser extent the NASDAQ. I think Danny made a really important point earlier. He's like the market where it is right now at 4,500, the S&P 500 is fully pricing in the rate hikes that you don't think are going to happen, right, Danny? You don't think we're going to get to seven or eight or anything like that. And so I guess the point is, so if we're going to hike ourselves into a position where the Fed has to get more dovish, that means that growth is not going to materialize. That means that the S&P multiple at about 19 times right now is way too high. If you think about it, we're expecting, I think, FactSet right now is calling for a consensus 8% year-over-year EPS growth. And there's no reason that the S&P should be trading at that sort of premium to the 10-year average, which I think is about 16 and a half times or so. And so if we're already pricing in all those hikes and market participants, at least in the stock market, feel pretty comfortable about normalizing rates and the Fed bringing down their balance sheet, what happens if you do get in a stagflationary environment? And that's the thing that, Danny, I got to give you credit. I know that was maybe semantics as we were talking about the word constructive or all. I think that there was very few people out there who have a mic, who go on TV, who talk about markets, who are talking about stagflation as early as you were doing it. And so to me, me, the worst case scenario is that you have stagflation and the Fed doesn't even get to their dot plot. Wouldn't that be horrible? Because we just have a situation where basically all the chickens are coming home to roost. When you think about how we started to battle recessions 22 years ago, bringing Fed funds to zero and then starting to dream up quantitative easing in the aftermath of the financial crisis, leaving rates unusually low for unusually long periods of time. Sooner or later, for all those freaks on the floor of the CME, you know who I'm talking about, who've been saying we're going to have runaway inflation, I guess it's finally happened, right? Well, there's clues and then there's inputs. And on the clues, the yield curve, which is basically flat at this point, the three-year actually is inverted to the 10-year at this point, just the two hasn't gone there yet. What is that telling you? That's telling you that the market believes that the Fed raising rates will slow down the economy. But the S&P is not necessarily telling us that. So that's a clue. What's an input? 
Input is the price of oil and what that means to an energy stock. An input is where rates are and what that means to financial stock. So there's a lot of things happening at the same time. And you are starting to see, and I think we will see, our next earnings report iteration across the board, the true impact of what these costs and what's happening, the true impact of inflation. And I think that will be the ultimate sell in May, go away time if it doesn't happen before that. So usually that's the time to go. So yeah, Dan, you're spot on. And I just try to meld all these things together and try to put this puzzle together. And if they do decide to go seven or eight or nine times, it will be in the face of a slowing and they will recognize that and we will be in stagflation for sure. Something caught my eye, your eye as well, Dan. I know, Danny, you saw this. BlackRock's Larry Fink, that's a $10 trillion entity, by the way, says something of the following. I'm paraphrasing to a point, but the Russian invasion of Ukraine has put an end to the globalization we have experienced over the last three decades. That was in his shareholder letter earlier this week. Think about that for a second, how, in my opinion, deflationary globalization has been for the last 30 years. And if it's putting an end to it, his letter, not mine. This is a company that oversees $10 trillion. He thought about the words that he was using. One has to only think that, again, inflation, it's been a problem for a myriad of reasons, only gets worse under that scenario. Yeah. You know, what's interesting about this is that we can go back now since 2015, since really the Republican platform or Trump in particular, once he took it over, was talking about really nationalistic economic policies. And it led to a trade war. And then it led to the idea of onshoring a lot of certain manufacturing that never really happened. So we've seen the inflationary pressures on a lot of those sorts of goods and services. They've been building. And I think that's been your point, right, Guy, over the last couple of years or so. So then all of a sudden we have this pandemic where supply chains are broken which makes a lot of countries start to rethink those very issues that you're talking about. We have human rights issues in some of these places. We have the sorts of issues that we have, communism versus capitalism in general. And so a lot of the stuff, it's been, I guess, going on in the background. So the fact that we have this black swan event with a pandemic that just really highlights all of these issues and now war, I think it's pretty fascinating that the guy who runs the largest asset management pool on the planet is saying that. And what is it really saying, though? It's saying that we should be ready for lower corporate profit margins here in the U.S. We also know that Larry Fink and BlackRock, they have their finger on this ESG thing. And when you think about what the components are of ESG, it plays into this a little bit, too. So to me, is this a warning about valuations going forward? Is it a warning about equity returns? I mean, look at what the Chinese have done to their own stocks. And we know that those stocks have been very popular by lots of investors here in the U.S. Do you want to be buying Chinese stocks listed here in the U.S. anymore if they're not going to play by the same rules that ours do and then their government can crush valuations? I do think it's worth paying attention to. I just don't think it's going to be something that happens overnight here in 2022. I think he recognizes that there are things happening geopolitically that are going to create structural change. When you create structural change, and you bring the jobs back, you bring factories back to be more self-sufficient, my opinion, that equals inflation because the cheap labor or the reason you make stuff overseas and bring it back is obviously cheap labor and things like that. So if that is the case, great for the middle income, great for middle class in the US because job growth will be outstanding, but that is going to be very inflationary and maybe it's overdue. Maybe we've run through that generational time period where we benefited from manufacturing costs being so low and everything from flat screen televisions to gadgets. And now it's time to talk about this before. It's a reversion to the mean. So I think he's seeing that. And I think he's prepared for it. And will he launch products that cater to that? He's a marketing genius. He probably will. 
You're right. I believe they will launch products, but it doesn't mean he doesn't believe it. And I know that's somewhat nuanced, I guess, but it's important to bring that out. I'll also say this, and this is more a food for thought thing. And I know, Dan, you were a political science major in college. I skipped that day at school. I was playing Frisbee or something. But I'm just going to throw this out there. I want you to sort of think about it, and I want the audience to think about it. Russia, Ukraine. I think it's pretty clear if you watch the news that things are not going according to plan for Vladimir Putin. I think a lot of people would also submit that he's losing this war. I think that's pretty clear that, again, he's probably miscalculated. And I think losing a war to Ukraine would be extraordinarily embarrassing to him. But think about this for a second. If loss is inevitable, if losing is inevitable, wouldn't it be better to lose to NATO forces as opposed to Ukraine by itself? In other words, he could probably justify, and in his mind, the history books will be kind to him, kind in air quotes, if we were to lose taking on the entire world as opposed to lose to the Ukrainians. Something to think about. I bring that up because I'm pretty convinced he's going to try to drag NATO into this thing. And again, I don't think the market's pricing that in. Just something to think about. Danny, you mentioned, by the way, quarter end. I do think that's important. We talk about from time to time, these markups marked down. As we sit here, we have another week left in this quarter. And maybe that's what we're seeing it in terms of money flows, why the market is somewhat buoyant here. Something else to think about. But something that you've been talking about for a while is all the problems that are going to take place once the Fed pivots. And right before our very eyes, Danny, we're seeing it. And we're seeing it related to QE, and we're seeing the impact on something called mortgage-backed securities, or in your world, MBS. Yeah, we talked about this for months. I don't know why the market wasn't paying attention. When the Fed talked about ending this QE and potentially going to qualitative tightening, QT, mortgage-backed securities would be gone first, treasuries would be second. So now you're starting to see the impact of that. What's happening? Mortgage rates, the 30-year fixed rates have jumped in August of 21, they were like 2.8%. They're now 4.7. They're approaching 5%. The last time we saw 5% was when 2018, the last time the Fed started to begin this unwind of QE process, which they quickly reversed. What was the time before that that we saw 5%? Oh, that was QE2 in 2011. So you're starting to get an idea of when the Fed is not in there buying, what this market can look like. We talked about KB Homes a minute ago and what the impact on the builders are going to be. Well, you have rates going up. You have labor costs going up. You have supply constraints and all these other things happening. That is where we're seeing. And let's not kid ourselves. Is the housing market as important as it was to the U.S. economy in 2004, 5, and 6? No. Is it important to the economy now? Yes. It's a huge component when you think about everything that goes into it. In the XHB itself, the ETF, you don't get to a builder until the 12th component in size. It's all the suppliers. It's all the things. This gives you an idea of everything, how that's related. So rates are moving higher. And I think the market is not paying attention to this. And so it was funny. There was a quote on one of these mortgage websites I was looking through to catch information. And they actually had a quote which said, the days of people buying bonds where they don't care about their return are over. They were referring to the Fed. So now you have investors out there who have to figure out where is the Fed going to end up going on rates? Where is the yield curve going to go? So just to put it in context... The 30-year bond has gone in the same time period, basically from 185 to 251. You are seeing a massive tail on the back end of what this looks like. So first glimpse of the Fed not participating, just imagine what it's going to look like. We're starting to see it now also in the traditional treasury market as well when QE is going to end. We're talking about a Fed balance sheet that's probably tad north of $9 trillion. 
2.7 trillion, Danny, is MBS stuff. You explain to me how this is magically going to roll off and there's not going to be any ripple effects. That has to be taken into consideration. I've said this for years incorrectly, by the way, because I thought the market would pick up on it. It hasn't. But the largest prop trade, and that's what we used to call our trades when we bet on things back in the day, in the history of mankind, is effectively the $9 trillion on the Fed balance sheet. Now, it's really easy getting into positions. It's really simple. You buy things, you sell things. It's really easy getting in, but it's that old Roach Motel thing. You can get in, but it's going to be a son of a bitch for them to try to get out. And that's what they're attempting to do now without causing disturbances in the market. Almost by definition, Danny, that's impossible to do. Yeah, the same way that Wall Street, and I don't mean this in a criminal way, front ran the Fed because the Fed tells you what they're going to do in terms of QE and buying treasuries, buying mortgage-backed securities. They're getting ahead of it on the other side. And you're seeing now what can happen when dealers start to unload these positions. And so it's just the nature of this unwind. Again, I'll use the phrase again, reversion to the mean. Go look at the historical chart of the 30-year mortgage. Go back a long time and look. The other thing to note, Guy, different this time than last time, I think only 3% of mortgages outstanding are in adjustable rate mortgages in arms. I believe it was a third of all mortgages back in the day. That's why this won't be as cataclysmic, but it is going to have an impact. I just read the dumbest fucking tweet. Lloyd Blankfein, the former CEO of Goldman Sachs, quote tweeted the Wall Street Journal, President Biden said the U.S. will respond if Russia uses chemical weapons in Ukraine. And Lloyd Blankfein writes... Worth noting, even Hitler didn't permit his military to use chemical weapons, though he had them. Oh, you mean the SS who are gassing millions of people in concentration camps? Delete your account, man. Come on. Yeah, Lloyd's doing Twitter wrong for sure. I didn't see that because I'm focused right now. I'm laser focused on the two of you sexy men, but I think you make a good point. I also think to that end, there's this quest to stay relevant, and I think he's trying to do it vis-a-vis Twitter. We'll see. And I just bring that up because, Guy, I really like what you had to say, bringing that point up. You mentioned the point about political science. I graduated in 1995. I don't pretend to know anything that anyone else does. And you brought up a really, really good point about how the history books are going to view Putin. And I think that's a really interesting way to think about an authoritarian leader like this who miscalculated on something like that. And again, I think if you're trading this market off of the guys you follow on Twitter and how they're thinking about the war and what the potential outcomes are going to be, you're probably trading investing wrong. And I think the way you guys have been thinking about it as far as the inputs, Danny, I like what you just said there. What are the forces that have caused certain inputs that are going to weigh on corporate earnings that will ultimately be the reason why the market's trading where it is. And that's the way to think about things right now. And I think to be very clear, it's as clear as mud. And so I read a tweet like that and it really frustrates me. I look at what the market's doing. The S&P right now, as we go into the close on Thursday, is up more than 1%. There's been a bunch of 1% and 2% up days over the last week. Is this just a technical thing? Is it just a quarter-end mark? We were headed for one of the worst quarters since Q1 of 2020 when we had the pandemic. What's going on right here? No, I think that's exactly what's going on. I think to Danny's point, but I will tell you, I obviously knew it was quarter end coming up. We all can read a calendar and I'm not making light of that. I'm just surprised by how robust this bounce has been in the wake of and in the midst of everything that we've just been talking about for the last 25 or so minutes. To me, it's a great example of, 
people just sort of whistling past the graveyard, in my opinion. And I'm not trying to be dark humor here. It's just, I think that's exactly what's going on in the market. Another example, Danny, is manifesting itself over the last week in some of these meme stocks that were de rigueur 14, 15 months ago that are back on it again. Look at the move in GameStop and AMC over the last few days, seemingly out of nowhere. GameStop came out with a horrible quarter, I think a week and a half or so ago, not that it matters. And that stock has probably rallied 40% since then. Nothing makes sense. What are your thoughts on some of these meme stocks, Danny? Let's just use GameStop here, for example. Ryan Cohen, who we spoke about, I think last week, it was ahead of the GameStop quarter. We said, we don't really care where the quarter is. We think that the company's overvalued. We're not short it. But this was in the context of the Bed Bath & Beyond, where he effectively wants to become an activist and people just follow him around. He bought 100,000 shares of GameStop in the last couple of days. He announced it between... 97 and 109 dollars he owns 9 million already so he bought 100,000 and he tweets out i'm putting my money where my mouth is okay stock rallies 50 percent on him buying 100,000 shares and those are the type of things and i keep talking about all know that we're done and washed out when i see stuff like that not have an impact and not work but here they are and just to bring in crypto who effectively the crypto market is tracking nasdaq and that's fine but when i see crypto come back like it has strong When I see the meme stocks come back strong like they are, I think in the case of the meme stocks, not necessarily crypto, it's a selling opportunity. And this is what I mean by being constructive, Dan. If you're in GameStop and you just got an opportunity, you got to sell that thing because there's no fundamental reason. Yes, they're going to launch an NFT marketplace. But seriously, those are the type of things that I keep seeing. And it tells me that we're not near the bottom. This is a bear market rally on certain names. Well, Danny, let me tell you a couple more important things. We had a couple of earnings this week. Big companies, Nike, put up, it was an okay quarter, right? In the face of what's going on globally, it probably looked pretty good. And the guidance was pretty good for the current quarter here. The stock was trading 140 in the aftermarket. This guy and I were talking about on Fast Money, I think it was Monday night, and it closed that day at 133. It's trading today at 132. This is a stock that traded 179 in November, traded as low as 116.75 just a week and a half ago. Stock doesn't trade well. And then the other one, and obviously that is an expensive valuation, trades expensive to its peers and also the market. And then Adobe, this was a $220 billion market cap company, trades at a multiple of sales that doesn't make sense for a company that size. They reported Guidance wasn't great. Stock was down nearly 10% on Wednesday following their report. So I keep an eye on those rather than the stupid stuff going on in meme and crypto and everything like that, especially as we get to quarter end, especially as we keep our antennas up for negative pre-announcements early in April. And then we're going to get an earnings season. And I just can't imagine that the visibility for the current quarter is going to be particularly good. We're already seeing GDP estimates get slashed. We saw that in the summer in Q3 with the Delta variant. We saw it in Q4 Omicron that led into Q1 here. And the market just doesn't seem to be pricing what this new reality is going to be like with a higher rate environment, even if they never get to that six, seven, eight, nine rate hikes. And I want to ask you guys this one question. Do you think there's a potential for a surprise rate hike in between meetings? Because we know we have this big period in between the May meeting here. And I'll just tell you this, if they come out and they want to shock the system with a 50 basis point hike, because they think that's the thing that might calm markets. I think it's going to do exactly the opposite. I think back in my career over the last 20 or so years, when the Fed has surprised markets in between meetings, it's done the exact opposite of what they hope to do in the stock market. I think Powell feels a little bit emboldened, even though we're pretending he doesn't care about the stock market. 
that the stock market has rallied like this. I think maybe that's what allowed him to come out and be free to say, I may go 50 in May. I don't believe that there will be any type of emergency rate hike. I think it'll be planned in May. But to your point, Dan, he may be talking up over the course leading up to that, the course of the month of April, saying, we're definitely going 50. It looks like 50. We're definitely going to go 50. So I think he's emboldened probably how the market's acting. Now that can change on a dime. And Dan, I just want to close the loop on one more thing. I don't judge the market in days or weeks or even months, maybe even quarters. I judge it over a period of time, multiple quarters, years. And I'm a big believer in that stocks will end up trading at their terminal value at some point, and there will be this reversion back to fundamental analysis. And so I'll always be the person that gets squeezed, but I'll take it and I'll short more. I'll always be the person that'll sit on these value stocks potentially and own them for a long period of time. It's in my nature because I believe fundamentals matter. We need to get to that place, I believe, and it's going to be painful, I think, to get to that place. So anyway, I just wanted to round out what you were saying because all this stuff is just noise. And if people out there think you can back your way into a GameStop or an AMC valuation and justify it, it's just not facts. Can it stay higher and go higher? Sure. But over a period of time, that is not going to be the end game. One of the main reasons people tune in on a tape, I know it's not from me. I'm sure to a certain extent they love hearing from Dan, but I know everybody likes hearing your picks. Again, the NFL was ridiculous. Well, here we are. Thursday is when we tape this. So there are going to be some games played by the time you folks get this dropped into your favorite podcast store on Friday. But let's go through a few games here, Danny, because I know you have some thoughts. You were, as I mentioned, crazy in NFL. Let's see what you can do here in some of these NC2A games. Yeah, so the Thursday night games, which if I get them wrong, I didn't hurt anybody. If I get them right, I should have put it out sooner. So it's no win, no lose situation. I like Duke even over Texas Tech tonight. And I like Houston getting a point here against Arizona. I think they're a live dog, as we say. Those are the two Thursday games that stick out to me on Friday, and I'll compound this in a second. I love UNC getting two and a half against UCLA. That line, I think, will close towards even. I like UNC at 20 to one to win this entire thing. Iowa State getting points against Miami on Friday makes no sense to me. Miami is just inconsistent. Iowa State's hot. You want to go with the hot team, so I like the two and a half there. And let me just round this out, guy, with what I think will be the final four, and that's Gonzaga, UNC, Houston, and Kansas. Obviously not going out on a limb there with Gonzaga and Kansas, but I think Houston has to pull a couple upsets, and so does UNC. UNC into the finals, playing Houston, a rematch of their Final Four from years ago in 1982. Where did that occur? That occurred in New Orleans. This is in New Orleans. UNC has won two championships in New Orleans in their storied history. I'm going with UNC, so 20-1 to UNC to win it all right here. I like it. They're playing well. There you go, guy. UNC coming in as an eight. I don't think midseason people thought they would get into the tournament, so I'm with you there. And Houston is a five against Arizona. Arizona's a very good basketball team. I will tell you, not that it matters. I thought Baylor was an easy Final Four team. They went out in the opening day. And I thought Auburn had a lot of wind beneath their sails. They got knocked out as well. Stick around, because coming up, legendary technology investor Gavin Baker will join us here on the tape. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com micros. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts 
with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group microcontracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. Gavin Baker is the Managing Partner and Chief Investment Officer of Atreides Management. In addition to overseeing investments and research at Atreides, he is responsible for the firm's day-to-day portfolio management. Prior to founding Atreides in 2019, Gavin was at Fidelity Investments from 1999 to 2017. All right, Guy Dami, we have a guest here on, on the tape. When we started out Rich Virtual Media and we're going to set up this podcast, I said there's one guy. There's one guy we got to get on. He doesn't do podcasts. Was, what do you call that? Well, you just got to have that thing. Isn't that a Herman Melville thing, Moby Dick? By the way, Moby Dick, as you know, Dan, a great song off of Zeppelin 2, right after Heartbreaker into Living, Loving, Made. Is that correct? Am I right? Living, loving. All right, Gavin Baker, welcomed on the tape. That was Guy Dami. I'm Dan Nathan. You don't do many of these, do you? I don't. Thanks for having me, Dan and Guy. Honored to be here. We had a short Twitter spaces, I want to say, over the summer, and it was pretty cool. Bill Gurley jumped on, and Bill Gurley said this. He's like, I saw Gavin doing something on Twitter, and whenever Gavin speaks, I want to listen. And I got to tell you, because I've been in tech. I know that you started at Fidelity, what, in the late 90s, the death rattle of the internet bubble. And as you do, I know a lot of people in public tech, in private tech, and for some reason, you're like, you're that kind of white whale. The guy that doesn't do a whole heck of a lot of press, you don't do a lot of long sit downs. So when we set up this thing, we really wanted to get you on. We're glad that we got you on. You've done an amazing job over the last couple of years. There was late 2019 in the throes of the pandemic in April of 2020, and then just in January of this year with Patrick O'Shaughnessy on Invest Like the Best. And I got to tell you, we're going to put them all in the show notes. If you listen on the tape and you haven't listened to those and listen to all of them because it's a really amazing sequence of events play by play here. We don't do what Patrick does. We're not nearly as good as what Patrick does, but you are going to give us an update. I think that January one kind of spelled out a lot of stuff was going on, but there's one huge monkey wrench right now. And I don't even think you talked about the situation in Ukraine. So I'd love to update some of that a little bit. Of course. One of the things that you guys spent a lot of time on was inflation. And we've spent a lot of time on this podcast discussing what the Fed was going to do. And I remember you saying the Fed's a sideshow. Guy's going to get into that. Guy's got a little Fed fetish there. We're going to do that after inflation here. But your thought was in line with what I've been thinking for a while is that we've had this 40-year sort of thing. And it was likely to kind of revert. But since late January, we've seen inflation expectations. They've just gone higher. I'm just curious how the situation, the geopolitical situation has changed your thinking in the last couple of months. First, I just want to say, as I said on Patrick's podcast, I think it's important to be really humble when talking about inflation rates, the economy. Anyone who has high confidence opinions on any of those things, either they should be worth over $100 billion or they have no idea what they are talking about, maybe $10 billion. So it's important to be really humble when discussing the future. And I am always mindful that the Federal Reserve, they have 800 PhD economists, twice as many as the number two institution in the world. They have vast amounts of computing power to run simulations. They have the macroeconomic equivalent of inside information, real-time data feeds from so many financial institutions, CEOs telling the regional governors, the CapEx plans, all data no one else can imagine. And most importantly, they control the most important dependent variable, the price of money. And with all of those advantages, they have essentially zero ability to forecast out more than six months. So who am I to have strong opinions? But I would say... To me, I would break inflation into three components. First, the supply chain-driven inflation, you know, COVID shortages, et cetera, et cetera. That's over. 
high confidence, capitalism is really good at solving those problems in a really short time frame. The second part of inflation, these were the only real two parts in January, was wages. This is a moment for particular humility because a lot of macroeconomic indicators are either at 40-year highs or at all-time highs. And one that was at an all-time high was the ratio of job openings to job seekers. There's something like 1.4 job openings for every job seeker. And that was an all-time high. So when something happens that has never happened before, that is definitionally unprecedented. And I do think we're just beginning to learn and understand how COVID reshaped the economic and social geography of America and the world. I think a lot of people rethought their priorities. They moved to less expensive places to live, where they didn't need to be a two-earner household. Maybe they moved in with their parents. So I think there's a lot of dynamics that we still don't understand. And I think it's really hard to predict a wage price spiral, but that is the one thing that has historically, over the long arc of history, destroyed societies, civilizations, countries. The third component, which is new, is commodity inflation. This is maybe beginning to bubble up, but what happened it with Russia and Ukraine put that into hyperdrive. And capitalism is also very good at solving these problems. Mm-hmm. just takes longer than solving a supply chain problem. So let me ask you, because that's a really great point. Capitalism has a great history of solving those problems. But all of a sudden now, we have this axis from a geopolitical standpoint that have a form of capitalism that actually is really important to our form of capitalism. But we're seeing that what Russia might do with their commodities, what the Chinese might do with their labor force or denying our goods and service. I mean, there's a war being waged on our form of capitalism that actually could keep some of these destabilizing forces as far as prices are concerned. And you talk about globalization. What a deglobalization is that thing? Because you talked about that we've never seen the job openings to job seekers. That could be massively exasperated if we were to see a huge acceleration in deglobalization. A hundred percent. What has driven this 40-year disinflationary cycle that we've been in? Two things. One, technology. And that's not changing. That is fundamentally not changing. Second, globalization. And if you reverse globalization, that is definitionally removing one of the two contributors to the past 40 years. And that's a big change. I am a little skeptical that will happen. If you're China, I think you export something vaguely right rather than precisely wrong, but 30, 40, 50 billion to Russia, and you're exporting a trillion dollars to Europe, America, Canada. Are they really going to choose Russia in a super decisive way? Maybe. And that would be a really, really big deal. But I think we will know in the next few weeks. A leading Chinese scholar wrote an article, and I thought it was very interesting. He said China has several weeks to choose between the West and Russia, and it really needs to choose the West. And you've seen them begun to soften their line, say nice things about the Ukraine. But I'm for sure no expert in geopolitics. But this is a massive variable, what China decides and what happens with Russia and the Ukraine. Gavin, if you're Moby Dick, that makes Dan Nathan Ahab. So I'll allow you to call me Ishmael. See what I did there, Dan? That's pretty good. But I don't know who Melville is in this equation. I will just say call me Ishmael, I think is the best first line of any novel ever. I think that, and I'll throw Benchley's The Great Fish Rose. I think that was the first couple lines of Jaws. But listen, we can have another podcast about that. And it's interesting you mentioned humility. I'm totally with you. I don't pretend to know anything about anything, but the opposite of humility is hubris. And we'll talk about the Fed in a minute. And I would suggest that's been the H-U word that they've been mandated by. Anyway, neither here nor there. Commodity scarcity. 
Really interesting stuff. I think people are going to attribute it, a lot of it to what's going on in Russia, Ukraine. That's clearly part of it. But this has been basically a slow motion up until this point. It's been moving under our feet literally for years. Can you speak to that now? Everybody's talking about it, but it's been in motion for a while. For sure. It's been going on. There's this ESG supply side thesis that ESG concerns are going to result in much less production of oil, gas, metals. I do think at some level ESG may need to be redefined after everything that's happened. I read that they're thinking about should defense companies no longer be considered bad for ESG because these weapons are being used to defend free populations from an invasion that they didn't ask for where terrible things are being done to them. And similarly, is it really ESG? Is it good for society to massively raise the prices of gasoline, all these daily necessities. And I fully understand that, hey, that's great. It gets us to this great long-term outcome. Today, the world runs on sunlight. It just runs on stored sunlight. Definitionally, every fossil fuel is stored sunlight. In the future, it'll just run on sunlight. That's just math, right? Solar voltaic cells are compounding in efficiency. It's something like 8 to 10% a year. You need batteries. Those are 6 to 8% a year. You just turn that out. It will take out every form of energy except nuclear in the next 50, 60, 70 years. Is it worth pulling that forward by 20 or 30 years by putting literally billions of low-income people around the world, making their lives worse? They feel the brunt of gas and food and all this commodity inflation much more than high-income people. So I do think ESG may be redefined. I also think politically, it's really easy to say, hey, we're against drilling. And then if gas goes to $5, are higher. And who's against drilling, really? Particularly when it's American jobs and it can help America and Europe buy oil and gas from all sorts of places that are led by people who do not share our ideals and values. We had Halima Croft on, who was a former CIA agent, and she's a commodity analyst a few weeks ago. And it was really interesting. She joined the CIA in December of 2001 when it became very clear after 9-11 that energy independence was a matter of national security. It's kind of interesting. Taking a step back for 20 years, you've been a consumer and tech investor. Have you ever spent so much time contemplating commodities and input costs and what that meant to consumers and to enterprises who have to factor in? these energy costs. In a prior life, I'd invested in energy, commodities, metals for eight and a half years. And I would just say, I think it's really interesting what has happened in the energy industry. And it feels like a little bit what happened in the American energy industry. Reminds me of what happens to the airlines. So 15 years ago, all the airline CEOs, they loved planes. They just loved jets. They had to have the newest and coolest jet made by Boeing our Airbus was not a disciplined industry. And then basically a bunch of CFOs took over and it became a much more disciplined industry. Obviously, COVID hit it hard, but returns were going up there. Kind of the same thing has happened in the American energy industry where you have a bunch of energy CEOs who don't have that wildcatter mentality. They are more focused on returns. They want to return cash to shareholder shareholders. They don't think it's the coolest thing in the world when you drill a new well. You could just hear these CEOs 10 years ago talking about how magical it was. And it really is. You go down two miles under the surface of the earth, and then you drill horizontally for a lot longer. Really magical technology, particularly with shale. 
and they don't feel that anymore. So it's a more financially disciplined industry, but it's also an industry with low barriers to entry and oil fields are there. And just an article in the Wall Street Journal about how wildcatters are picking up the slack and they're small, independent operations. Oh, (laughs) you don't want to drill there? No problem. We'll drill there. Curious to see if this discipline in the American energy industry persists. And I do think with oil prices where they are, it's hard to fight the temptation and the returns. It's a little bit of prisoner's dilemma. If you drill, (laughs) you can make a lot more money. If everybody drills, price comes down and you make less money, but somebody always succumbs. But look, I am certainly no expert on energy and I have not thought a lot about it in a while. Yeah. Well, Guy is, like you said just a bit ago, and Guy, I'd love to get your take on that. You were talking about the underinvestment for the last 10 years. I mean, you've had thoughts on ESG, and for you, this was something that was coming anyway. And I'm just curious to kind of hear, how do we transition? Because I look at my facts at board, and I have like a few hundred stocks up there, and I have them by sector. And if you look at what's up year to date, you know what they are. And it's crazy. And some of those stocks are well in the services space and large integrated guys. They're well off their all-time highs, too. So are we about to enter in this bull market? market for the thing that wasn't the thing over the last 10 years. I will say I have always had a bias for metals over oil and gas. And just a simple reason is the decline curves aren't nearly as steep. You can high grade. So you run a more stable margin. And who knows what happens to oil demand long term. It is theoretically possible for all transport on the earth to be electric other than rockets. That's the only place you really need that energy density that you can get with fossil fuels to escape the Earth's gravity well. There's this idea that metals are the energy of the future, and I'm sympathetic to that. So I would probably, no expert, I probably have a bias for metals over energy, but it also takes a lot longer to bring on a new project there. But we'll see. Time will tell. I'm no expert. This is well outside where I normally spend my time. I'm a metals guy as well. I actually started in 86 in the business as a commodities trader, precious metals. So got to travel all over the world. And it's fascinating, the arc that metals have taken. And now base metals, people that couldn't spell nickel a year ago, now everybody seems to be an expert in it today. It's fascinating. You started by talking about the Fed and you mentioned all the PhDs they have working for them. And these are my words. I'm not putting words in your mouth. And I will say this, I've said it, they still manage to screw it up in a epic fashion. A lot of the problems in terms of Again, my opinion, the wealth disparity in this country, which continues to widen seemingly every day, I put it the hands of the Federal Reserve. Again, my opinion. But I'll ask you this. We're at the verge of, and I don't think there's any going back at this point, six, seven rate hikes over the next 11, 12 months. What are the ramifications for that if they're able to not blink and go down that path? I said on an earlier podcast, Dan referenced it, that the Fed was a sideshow. And I just think at some level, they are. They could lose control. If we enter a wage price spiral, they will have to do the things that Volcker did in the early 80s. So I think maybe by waiting, they have lost some control and events have overtaken them. But for sure, look, if rates go up, the economy will slow. At some level, recessions are just changes in consumers purchasing durable goods, mostly houses and autos. And a lot of those are financed. And so if you take up rates and it's more expensive to buy a car or a house, the economy will slow. You know, and then lots of other things go into houses, but lots of durable goods are financed. So the combination of 
rates going up and energy prices, it does feel like a recession is at least some possibility. So for the last 20 years, though, every time we've had a recession, the Fed's playbook has been to lower interest rates. And so that's what you're saying, a real conundrum that they're going to have here is that they've set this course and now the market's pricing six, seven rate hikes here, but they might hike themselves in the near term into a recession. And then what do they do? I believe the market is already pricing in rate cuts in either 23 or 24. The market's already there. They're pricing in a recession and rate cuts, or at least rate cuts. I do think it is hard to believe that if we get a recession and you have demand slow, that inflation will not also come off the boil unless you've entered one of these wage price spirals that it's very hard to understand why they happen. And that would be really, really bad for America. And then we would have a lot more than seven rate hikes, no matter what was happening with the economy. Gavin, I saw, it's interesting. I always go back to what's easy for me. And for me, it's either sports or The Godfather. And Godfather 2, there's a scene when Al Pacino is sitting there in Cuba on the terrace and he's telling a story and he says, I saw something today. I saw something last week. My wife, I was in her office. She was doing work. We had some ridiculous show on ABC. And over the course of the hour, there were two commercials for a place called the Great Wolf Lodge. I don't suggest you know what it is. I'm familiar with it because I had young kids at the time. But it wasn't a commercial to get you to go there with your kids. It was commercial trying to get people to work there. I went from Channel 7 to Channel 4 after that show was over. And in the course of that hour, I saw the same two advertisements. I have never seen that before in my life, ever. A company advertising for employees. And that speaks to exactly the point you're making. I don't know how it happens. I don't know what the impetus for it is. But this wage hike spiral, it's going on right before our very eyes. Yeah, and I think the real question is, does it persist into a slowdown? And does it last as maybe some of the supply chain inflation eases, a stimulus savings run out? I think a lot of Americans and people around the world have kind of rethought their relationship with work in some fundamental way. And we don't yet know the impact of that on the economic geography. Maybe just that jobs are in the wrong places. People have moved to places, remote work. So many things have changed. Guy, I think that's actually a great point, and I'm going to remember that. Whenever you see something as an investor that you've never seen before, you really, really need to focus on it. So this ratio of there's more job openings than unemployed, it's higher than it's ever been. Companies are running ads for workers. And I would add, maybe you see those ads during seasonally high periods like the fourth quarter, but for sure, I've never seen one of those in March. So I actually think that's an important and interesting data point. We're in unprecedented times. All sorts of interesting things are happening. So there was an interesting tweet on this point about unprecedented things happening from someone named Connorson, who was formerly a Bloomberg columnist. And he said, we're going to have inverted yield curves, negative real interest rates, nominal GDP growth over 6%, and without any of the obvious corporate or household excesses we had between 1998, 2008, and a lot of investors just won't know what to do. I don't know if he's right. And I don't know if he was saying that was what was going to happen. I think he was just making the argument that we might be heading into a market interest rate an economic environment that no investor has ever seen. Forget having seen inflation, which very few living investors have seen, but it might be a completely unprecedented macroeconomic environment. And I will say personally as an investor, I think that's kind of exciting. It will reward first principles thinking, 
there will be no playbook. History doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. And investors are always looking to history for clues to the future. And if things are completely unprecedented, there's no history to look to. Let's talk about that as it relates to the stock market. So we had an S&P that had a peak to trough decline in what from January 4th to last week of almost 15% or so. The NASDAQ was down, I think, at the lows, like 23%. And that had topped out in late November. And we know that under the hood, and I know you and Patrick spent a lot of time talking about in January, that started in early 2021, what was going on in the NASDAQ and a handful of stocks really optically kept both of the major indices. Or even August, September 2020. You've had a crash. Yeah. That's September 2nd, 2020. Remember that reversal? And that was insane. And really, your point is a good one. It was like 10 stocks that actually led the NASDAQ up to new highs over the course of the next nine months or something like that. And we had been talking about that crypto, meme stocks, SPACs. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. The stuff that our antennas were up of all of 2021. But right now, with the S&P, after the rally that we've just had, so here we are, we're a week away from closing out Q1. It was set up to be one of the worst quarters for the stock market in a very long time, I think going back to the throes of the pandemic in Q1 of 2020. And then obviously prior to that, we know the periods. But here we are, 5.5% lower on the S&P 500. Do you think that encapsulates all of what you just said? It just seems there's a massive disconnect right now. Yeah, but if it's good to be humble about forecasting rates, it's equally it's equally smart to be humble about having a strong opinion on the market. Yeah, I think it's a very, very tricky time. You said crypto. And one thing that I think is very, very interesting right now, without expressing a value judgment on whether this was good or bad, but there are lots of innocent good people in both Russia and obviously the Ukraine. If you were a Russian and you had a reasonable amount of your net worth in crypto, it changed your life over the last two months. Crypto did its job. We all look at Bitcoin or ETH US dollar charts, but you know, the Bitcoin ruble chart, the ETH ruble chart, it preserved wealth. It did act as digital gold. And I think that's something interesting to think about for crypto. Right. One of the things I think is interesting year over year when it seemed like all the targets for Bitcoin 24 months out or something were like 200,000 or something like that. And that's when it was skipping from 40 to 50 to 60. A lot of those people with really some very optimistic near-term bull cases, they've dropped that major pillar of a store of value as it relates, I guess, versus U.S. dollar, if you think about it. So it works in freaky situations, I guess. It's an interesting narrative because we had all been thinking about it through our lens through the U.S. dollar. So there's however many people there are in America, 300-ish million. There are billions of people who live in countries where war, hyperinflation— are much more common and frequent maybe than they are here in America. And for them, maybe it's good to think about Bitcoin differently. Obviously, it has not been an inflation hedge in U.S. dollars, but it's been a wealth preservation store of value in country going through a crisis. Yeah, no, and I think that some of the smartest crypto minds here, despite the fact that they feel like Bitcoin and Ether stuck at this mid-range over the last year, I think they're pointing to that and saying it did what it's supposed to do over there, and that makes total sense. Let's pivot to tech a little bit here, because going back to your conversation with Patrick in late January, we really hadn't gotten through Q4 earnings or Q1 guidance at that point. And you had a couple of very pressing 
transient calls. I think he said something like, God help internet in particular. And I think it was really interesting because we had that juxtaposition between Facebook, which has literally been cut in half from its highs in November. It was nearly a trillion dollar market cap company, I think at its highs and cut in half. And then Snap, the flip side, you said God help for the ones that have been really beaten down. And that was down a much greater percentage. And that had that 60% one day move. All right, what gives here, man? Because that sort of price action didn't lead me to believe that we're anywhere near a bottom. If you think about the whipsaw action we're seeing in those sorts of names. The wild volatility, the only time I've experienced something like this was 0809 in terms of actively being a participant in the markets. I was there for 2000 as an analyst at the time. Maybe it wasn't as visceral. And for sure, you can go back and look, it was volatile. But this really does feel like 0809 from a market action perspective. But I also think, you know, in the Department of Having Humility, I think there are all those stats. Anytime you've had three consecutive up days with so much breadth, like we had last week, with a very high hit rate, the forward returns are really good. It is small, but it's 30 or 35. But to your point, it is hard to square that with all of the cross currents. From a tech perspective, a lot of internet companies did miss. They're pretty bombed out. The few that didn't miss, as you point out, were pretty vertical because I think there's a lot of alternative data, lots of surveys. And so I think misses in internet by the time they reported were pretty widely anticipated. And if you get a widely anticipated miss and then the company beats, you get a violent reaction. You saw that. In that podcast, I talked about a bias for software because of recurring revenue, high returns on invested capital, which helps you in an inflationary environment. I for sure still have a bias towards software, although I do prefer companies that are either really objectively cheap on EV to sales, like a really material discount, Toma Brava takeout that we just shot 12 times sales. Which, by the way, you said on that podcast, there's a lot of drive powder, and you actually mentioned Toma Brava just raised a $20 billion fund, so they got to work quickly, huh? They got to work quickly. And I think it's interesting because I think you could argue that some of the cheaper software names underreacted to that because they're still trading at a 50% discount to the Toma Bravo takeout price for faster growth and price stronger competitive positions. Within software, I I either want really cheap on EV to sales so that look through free cash flow yield is high or I want a free cash flow yield. So you just said you were an analyst back in 99, 2000. At the time, it was a pretty euphoric environment. And in a lot of ways, you could say that the last couple of years felt kind of similar as it relates to some of the Web3 stuff and some of the stuff that was going on in private markets as it did back then. One of the things that I think was really different, because I was trading back then as a hedge fund, is that the market topped out in 2000. No one knew that was it. And there was a huge rally late in 2000. And then we had 2001 and there were geopolitical stuff. But 2002 was the worst year. It felt like a gut punch. You'd have one step forward, two steps back. And that's what's gone on in a lot large parts of tech over the last year or so. Are we going to have a protracted bear market? Because everyone gets used to these V reversals. Square rallied 70% or something off of a low, but it's still down 55%. So that move even looks like a blip on that four-year chart. What I would say, I do think it's a fundamentally different environment than it was in 2000. In 2000, Everything was based on ideas. There were no really strong fundamentals. The strong fundamentals back in 2000 were all connected to the telecom build out and building out the infrastructure for the internet. 
And it fit perfectly into that Carlotta Perez framework, technological revolutions and financial bubbles or capital. But one of my favorite books on investing in tech ever. You had a massive bubble, but that bubble funded the build out of the infrastructure we needed for the internet. But then there weren't many applications for the internet back then relative to today. And that's happened many times before. It happened with the railroads. To get the railroads built, you needed a bubble. And all of a sudden, got into 2000, 2001, and a lot of money had been going into CapEx for telecom. And then it's like, oh, my God, we've bought all these dense wave division multiplexers. We put all this fiber at the ground, and we're utilizing 0.1% of it. It's actually amazing how long it took to absorb that capacity. In the early 2010s, some of the giant mega cap internet companies were still buying basically dark fiber for free, lighting it up. Today, everything is real and there's no CapEx bubble. Because so much computing is done in the cloud, it's much more of a consumption model. Maybe you're building six months ahead. I promise you, if these big cloud companies stopped investing, they'd run out of capacity in 12 months, 18 months, 24 months. You don't have 15 to 20 years of excess capacity like you had in the telecom bubble. And you have real revenues, real earnings and free cash flow here. But wouldn't you get nervous if we had a bit of a V reversal? Let's just say that the top five names in the NASDAQ were able to get the index unchanged on the year, but you have dozens, if not hundreds of these stocks that are never going back to their highs. Then you just have this crazy bifurcated market. Yeah, I think never is a long time. Words I try to avoid are never, always, ever. I do think some of these stocks that are real companies that are growing their revenue fast, generating free cash flow, are clearly have a margin structure that will allow them to generate free cash flow. I think sometimes we underestimate how much control these modern companies have over their P&Ls. It's very different than companies in other industries. Right. You tweeted this last week. You suspect a majority of companies that announced plans for 2022 to be in an investment year with declining margins and or increasing capex on their Q4 calls will talk those plans back in Q1. So you think that's just going to be a short-term blip, and then when they get more clarity about the macro environment, they get back in there. I kind of want to distinguish, you know, so I don't know if you're a large bank, hundreds of billions of dollars, and you announced an investment year because you're in mortal fear of fintech. I don't know that they're going to roll back those plans. And by the way, those investment years are all being spent on tech. But I do think a lot of tech companies, if you announced an investment year, these companies have control over their P&Ls, but they're still bureaucratic. They have boards. They're slow moving. You set some silly 2022 plan in October, November, December. And then you feel compelled to stick with it. And then you announce an investment year and your stock's already down 50 since you made that plan, maybe down 60. Now you go down another 20 because the market has no tolerance for investment years. Now your employees are losing morale. They're starting to leave. Retention's an issue. Recruiting's an issue. So I think you'll see a lot of companies probably reprice options and roll back some of those investment plans within technology. Otherwise, you're just going to have this flow of talent from one company to another. But I do think it's really important to realize, I first saw this as success factors, which I owned in 07, 08, 09, probably one of the first 10 SaaS companies to go public. I think they took their free cash flow margins up something like 100 points in two to three quarters. And you've just had other SaaS companies in the last two quarters take free cash flow margins up 80 to 90 points. These companies really are making conscious trade-offs between free cash flow generation and growth. And when they ramp those margins, it's not like the growth stops. Growth just slows down and then it stabilizes. 
So there's a lot of control over P&Ls. I guess I would just say this feels much more real to me. There's so many demand drivers across so many axes for tech. It feels very different than 00 and 01 when it was a dream. And everybody's excited about the dream. And the dream came true. Gavin, apparently there's some TV show, I don't know, one of those plus networks. I think it's called like Succession. I think it was that dude that played Agamemnon in Troy with, remember, Lando Bloom. Diane Kruger, by the way, I'll watch her read the phone book. But that's another podcast for another time. Why do I mention this Succession thing? Well, big tech Succession, it's right in front of us. By the way, Microsoft did it brilliantly. Who's going to do it brilliantly here? Is it Amazon? They're at a bit of a crossroads here. Can you speak to what's going on? Big tech Succession. You know, I think time will tell. I do think Tim Cook laid out a playbook for following a truly legendary founder. And I think that worked out really well for Tim Cook and his shareholders historically, not making anything forward-looking about Tim Cook's plans. But I think if you're taking over a giant, highly cash-generative company, maybe it's hard not to look at that playbook. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I think Guy's point is that if you look at Tim Cook 10 years ago, you look at Satya Nadella, and then you look at Sundar. What did they do? They did very similar to what Andy Jazzy just did. They announced a buyback. That was the first thing that they started doing, to your point about the cash generator. Amazon's underperformance over the last 18 months until that news, I mean, you kind of saw that coming a little bit. What about Reed Hastings in a way? That stock, Netflix, has been cut in half. And I think Guy would tell you, he said it on Fast Money probably 100 times over the last 10 years, one of the most genius, disruptive tech CEOs of the last 20 or so years. What happens with Netflix right now? Guy just mentioned all those plus networks and everything. The competition seems crazy. It seems like an arms race as far as content. The stock down 50%. I'm just curious if you have any thoughts there. Well, for sure, you want to be long content. The streaming industry will consolidate. Competition will rationalize over time. I just don't think it supports this many players. And there are scale and network effects that I think are underappreciated in two ways. First, definitionally, if you have more subscribers – You can afford to spend more on content because you're amortizing that spend over more subscribers. And second, if you're a content producer, you want your content to be seen. And so you want to go to the streaming service with the most distribution. That's a little bit of a network effect between, you know, the supply and the demand side, you know, the viewers and the content creators. And then the first point I made is obviously scale advantage. So I do think you will see it consolidate. I think you will see several large global streaming services. And I think it's highly likely that the two largest will remain standing. And you've got another six or seven players. Those will rationalize. Those will combine in different ways. Or maybe they get combined into a bundle by distributors and aggregators, and we're back to cable TV. Well, you just mentioned that Toma Brava, the Anaplan deal is nearly $11 billion. And back in January, you had Microsoft make a $70 billion acquisition for Activision. Netflix has already said they want to get into gaming. They understand that the attention that they're competing for now is not just video. And so do you think we'll see further consolidation in some of these areas? I think you have to. I've had a positive thesis on the video games that I would say has probably broadly been wrong based on the idea that video games today are metaverses and owning a large, persistent multiplayer video game is actually a really, really important part of being a player in the metaverse. You know, content is king everywhere. For sure it will be in the metaverse. These games are metaverses today. But I think, yeah, the market has clearly shown us the strategic value of these companies are higher than the financial value. And I also think what you're seeing has PlayStation and Xbox move towards subscriptions. It also probably argues for more consolidation. If you can buy a big game, make it exclusive to your subscription, 
You can drive people onto your platform and monetize with microtransactions. So I think we will probably see more consolidation in the video game space. I could see a $40 billion deal for a Roblox with Netflix. I'm not asking you to opine on that one way or another. But I mean, you think about their scarce metaverse assets. And if you're saying that their games are they're siloed that way, then the likelihood that they're going to be able to get the sort of scale. Think about this in social. How many social companies have been able to get to a billion? There's only been a handful. Yeah. And I do think at some level, video games are fulfilling universal fantasies, being a soldier, being a criminal, being a sports star, living in a different time, living in the future. And a lot of those big franchises and universal fantasies, they're already set. It's going to be really hard to compete with kind of a dominant franchise has these social network characteristics in a given genre. So one of the things I think that makes you so interesting every time I get the opportunity to listen to you talk about tech, you are a crossover investor. You have this experience in public markets, and it was at a massive financial services company, but then you also led the charge as they moved into privates and now at treaties. You do both. You're able to kind of think about through different lenses. And I was out to dinner the other night with our good friend, Anthony Contaleone from Credit Suisse, who introduced us. And I was with another good friend of ours, Nime Mehta from Lead Edge. He's a great VC. And we got a real chuckle because we were talking about your conversation with Patrick in January, where you said, welcome all of my VC and private equity friends to the public markets. And I'm paraphrasing here. You're like, it's fucking insanity. Okay. The daily mark to market and this and that, whatever. And we were talking about that. There was a story in the information a week or two ago about Fidelity and T. Rose marks of Instacart. And immediately when I see that story, I pull up on my facts that I pull up DoorDash down 70%. And they're like, yeah, they marked Instacart down like 18%. Talk to us a little bit about that push and pull of the marks in public versus private. For sure. So the one thing I would just say, if you, in that information article, those marks were from November. Yeah, no, I saw that. You see the mutual fund marks in frequently. And I would just say mutual funds are highly incented to have accurate marks. You just see them infrequently because shareholders are buying and selling at that price. Private positions are mutualized, definitionally. So- I would just say marks are going to be what they're going to be. But I would just say marks are very different than down rounds. Down rounds are rare. The whole system is set up to avoid down rounds. The company's running out of cash. The insiders pony up some more, and they put a little bit of structure there. How do you value that structure? It's hard to value it. People wrestle with that. In my experience, full recaps are more common. In other words, it's like keep the dream alive by doing an inside round with some structure. And then you keep the dream alive a little longer by doing another inside round with even more structure. And then the insiders are tapped out. Somebody else comes along and they're like, oh, my God, that's a $2 billion preference stack. I'm not investing under that stack. You want me to invest new money into this? We're burning that down and we're starting over. And then you get a full recap. Some of those are in process today, not with well-known companies. But you are beginning to see that. Yeah, and we just haven't seen it in a big public fashion. And give us a little sense of what your experience over the last 20 years, the sort of lag that you'll see from a public market revaluation and how it works into the private markets. So historically, there was a six to nine month lag, and it was a very predictable pattern. You needed a six to nine month sustained change in public market valuations to really impact venture growth equity. I think because there are so many more crossover investors today, that link has become much tighter and the lag is much shorter. There has been a real adjustment in venture for doing new rounds. I think you got to remember, like if you saw a round announced in February, maybe it was negotiated and priced and invested in November, December. 
So there's a big lag between something as priced and negotiated and announced. Today, real-time valuations have adjusted, are adjusting, and are continuing to adjust. It's like the VCs and the founders, they have to go through the stages of grief. We're well past denial. Guy has mentioned this, I think he mentioned on the show last night, the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield three weeks ago was 165. Now we're at 235. And so interest rates are going to play a huge part in valuations right now that might be announced in a couple of months. And I'm just wondering if you're saying that we're seeing this. But I think what will play a huge part is the public comps. I don't know that many VCs are running DCFs with interest rates, but for sure, definitionally, the public comps, that is your exit multiple. It for sure impacts. So I think the public comps seeing these multiples down 50, 60, 70, 80%, that is absolutely beginning to impact new private valuations today. But you got to remember, that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be down rounds because maybe these rounds happen every two years. And so it's like, hey, are you really down relative to where you were two years ago? Maybe you're growing really fast. Maybe your multiple is massively compressed. You're only up a little. But man, if you're a private company that is missing plan, has three to six months of cash left, it's a harsh world. All right, let's talk about real quickly multiple compression, because I think you had mentioned earlier, when you look at the sort of devastation that we've seen in public markets, you look out 12, 18, whatever, you're going to get positive returns. Are you starting to feel really a bit more comfortable? Because I'm sure you were uneasy when you were seeing some of these 20, 30 times sales multiples a year ago. But now a lot of these have come down to single digits. Are you starting to see some opportunities? Absolutely. First of all, I can't help myself. I'm addicted to buying weakness and 52-week lows, and I'm generally always early. Explain that a little bit, because I see that too. I mean, I'm that way, but is that antithetical to growth investing? Because you're buying that weakness, right? And you're trying to get there for the turn. Yeah, well, I'd say growth investing and momentum investing are two different things that are often conflated. Where's the momentum in the market today? And value stocks like energy and metals. There's no natural relationship between growth and momentum investing. And I'm certainly not a momentum investor. I am a growth investor, but I also consider myself a deep value investor. I love to feel like I'm buying something at five or six times, maybe seven or eight times free cash flow, looking out five years, and it's a good business, and I have pretty high confidence I'll make money if I'm right on fundamental outlook. Particularly that Tomo Bravo mark, when I did Patrick's podcast, it was hypothetical. Now it's real. It's at 100% valuation premium to a lot of companies that are growing faster, have stronger fundamentals, and deeper competitive advantages. I at least feel better and have more confidence with some of these software names that are trading at a deep discount to what is their clear private market value. So interest rates are not playing a big role. And I'm seeing, though, it seems like... Well, interest rates are, but indirectly. They're influencing these multiples. And then the multiples are what I think are influencing venture and growth equity valuation. All right. So let's talk about venture, though. It seems like every VC that I know is out there raising capital at the moment. And it reminds me a lot about the mid-2000s when we had that protracted bear market and then the hedge fund business exploded and people were leaving big shops, whether they be sell side or buy side, they could have been leaving Fidelity. And they're like literally launching a hedge fund, a long short fund with a billion dollars. And I think a lot of those funds, they got big and then they just never realized the sort of performance that justifies the fees for all intents and purposes. And I'm not dogging the VC space. I'd much rather be deploying money in the private markets than I think that I might in the public markets right now. But Katie Hahn, she just raised $1.5 billion. A half a billion is going to be 
early stage Web3, and then a billion is going to be later stage growth. Give me a sense of what excites you. If you had a billion and a half dollars dropped in your lap and you're focused on Web3, are there areas of Web3? Is it nuanced here? First, I would just say Katie Hahn is a brilliant woman with a very impressive track record. And I'm sure she could have raised a lot more money had she wanted to. I do think her background, she brings a unique angle to crypto, being able to assess regulatory risks and help with them. So I don't know if she's a good parallel to random people launching big hedge funds in the mid-2000s. And I'm not dogging that by any means. What I'm saying is is that it is going to be a footnote in this period of time because it's a massive amount of money designated for Web3. In Web3, I guess the areas that I am excited about are mostly infrastructure layer companies. To realize this Web3.0 vision, a lot of which is really recreating today's dominant internet companies in a more decentralized way, and I understand you can control your identity, et cetera, et cetera. There is a lot of infrastructure and tooling that needs to happen to make it easier to build blockchains, building specialized blockchains. So infrastructure is where I'm probably most excited about in Web3.0. And those are more traditional tech plays, though, for the most part, or no? Yeah, well, they're crypto companies. A lot of them will have an ICO, which you don't see in a traditional tech company. But that's where I would say I'm focused in Web 3.0. But broadly speaking, in venture and growth equity, I want the highest risk-adjusted IRR. I've been doing tech now for 22 years. love investing in semiconductors. There's a lot of exciting things happening in semis in venture. Very comfortable internet, software, application and infrastructure software, D2C business models. I'm equal opportunity. Wherever I believe the highest risk-adjusted IRR, that's where I want to go. So, Gavin, at the top of this, and thanks for being so gracious with your time, you talked about Chinese and their need to choose wisely. It brings me back. I think you've learned a lot about me over the last hour. One of the things, I'm not that bright, too. I love old movies. But it was one of those Harrison Ford movies, Raiders or something, where they were choosing the goblet and he chose poorly. What are the chances? Because to me, this is the existential risk that China does choose poorly and they align themselves with Russia. Because if that were to happen catastrophic is word I'm choosing to use, that would happen in the markets, I believe. Yeah. And by the way, it's Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, not Raiders of the Last Ark. <laughs> yeah, they're all the same. It's like those Harry Potter movies, a bunch of kids that just get older with wands and stuff. And that double dork guy, they all become the same movie. Anyway, back to you. For sure, there is a risk that they fail to choose wisely in the Last Crusade. The wise choice is the really simple chalice. That's the actual Holy Grail, not the really ornate ones. Look, I think if you're Xi Jinping, you're a few months away from a super important election within the Communist Party where you're hoping to have power for life. Gosh, I do think economics so strongly argue for not creating a semi-permanent rupture with the West, with the United States. You still have a lot of people in China, particularly rural China and away from the coasts, who are still relatively poor. There's a lot of economic growth I think that China wants and needs to kind of improve the living standards of their population. And if you think about it from that perspective, it just really, really seems to argue for staying at least semi a part of the West and trading with them and having economic relationships. So I guess that would be my instinct, but I think it's really hard to call. And I think we're going to turn over a lot of cards here in the market in the Ukraine, Russia, China making this choice in the next few weeks and months. 
Listen, we really appreciate, obviously, your time, but also your optimism. You mentioned this a number of different times. Forecasting the future is a really hard thing, and I think your humility and you've traded through public markets and invested in private markets through all different sorts of cycles. And I think my biggest takeaway here is that we really are on the precipice of something that none of us have ever seen. So anybody particularly too certain about what they think is going to happen anytime soon, you're likely to be wrong. Is that fair? For sure. And I think it's an exciting time to be an investor. Just if there is no playbook, to me, that's exciting. It's an opportunity to hopefully figure out maybe the playbook and think from first principles. And I can't help it. I love volatility, right? Well, and it provides those sorts of opportunities. The other thing I was going to say, you know, you're also very gracious on Twitter. When I hear you speaking, you're often citing people that you think are smart, that are giving you good ideas. For our listeners, what are some good follows, some good listens? Are there some blogs or people you follow on Twitter or some podcasts that people should be focused on that really get you going? Yeah, I love... Patrick O'Shaughnessy's Invest Like the Best. Ben Thompson's Stratetri is really, really good. I'm sure everybody reads those. I'm sure everybody now reads Packy McCormick, but he's over 18 months. He's written some really impressive, very interesting things. Did you get through his flow one? I mean, it was literally 14,000 words. And I said, I'm going to designate a weekend sometime in May to do that. I have not read his flow one. But I do think to do venture successfully in the future, if you're not one of these great brand name firms or a legendary entrepreneur, you're going to need a media presence. Yeah. And I think you're really seeing that actually with both Packy and Patrick. Well, what, what Patrick has built is truly phenomenal. I mean, it's kind of like a one-stop shop. I started listening to him. Someone passed me his Hash Power series that he did in 2017 on crypto. To this day, the best way to learn about crypto. Right? I still share it with people. If you got five hours, and literally, I think it really still holds up. He came on our podcast last year, and we talked about that. So that, to me, was a really seminal work. Is there anything that off the radar, because obviously we love Packy, we love Patrick, and Stratectory is great. Any under-the-radar follows on Twitter? I don't know if it's a follow, but books that were very formative for me as an investor that are maybe one tick off the beaten path were New Market Wizards. Then there's a series by John Train called The Money Masters. Those are great. Here's one. And I think Guy was featured in this book. And Packy and I were podcasting yesterday on OK Computer. And I said to him, have you ever read Reminiscence of a Stock Operator? Because that's about manias. It's about behavioral finance. And I said to him, you should reread that. I bet you you would find so much good material for not boring 100 years later. No question. And that's, of course, a seminal book. Buffett, Peter Lynch, Soros, and Reminiscence of a Stock Operator. You have to be steeped in them. You know, the mark of a great book is that it's timeless. And you get something new out of it every time you read it. It's a mark of a great movie. We've talked about The Godfather. Every time I watch Godfather 1 or 2, they hit me differently because you've had different experiences in your life. And reminiscences of a stalker operator is for sure the same. It's me very differently the last time I read it than it did when I read it at the age of 20 or 21 years old. Yeah, I reread it a few years ago. Guy, how does Godfather 1 hit you? It is a perfect movie. Outside of a couple little flaws, as the aforementioned Sonny Missing Carlo by about a foot and a half. A couple other little things that I was upset by. Other than that, it's a perfect movie. Well, I saw it in the theaters just a couple weeks ago in a massive theater. It was a 50th re-release. It was absolutely amazing. All right, listen, Gavin Baker, thank you very much for taking the time with us. And we hope, we hope that you will come back sometime very soon. Love to. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. 
If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.